something that took me a lot longer to figure out and to begin to understand was Reformed worship. I grew up Baptist, and, and many of you all did as well, or a similar tradition. And so moving into that, into a Reformed worship service, it was very unusual. The church I was attending at that time back in my hometown of Oklahoma City was very similar in how it's structured. We'll talk about why that's the case, but it was very similar to how we do it. It was very unusual for me, so it was, it was a bit bizarre, the whole I'm talking during the service many times, uh, confessing our sins together. It was very weird. And, and so because it was exciting, and I, I, I spent a lot of time reading about it, trying to understand it. I'm still learning lots of things about it. But because of that, because of beginning to understand what these things mean, it has become one of my favorite things to talk about. So that was a long-winded way of saying that. That's why we're doing this as a, as a subject today. So the way that we're going to approach it, you can see this on your handout. We've got two different sections. I'll, I'll admit I didn't probably put much time into coming up with a really exciting title. So it's Principles and Applications of Reformed Worship. And what we're going to do in that first section is just talk about principles of Reformed worship. And these are ones that would have very broad agreement for anybody that would describe themselves as Reformed. So meaning that in a full sense, not just somebody who is, say, maybe Baptist and would say, but we adhere or, or we subscribe to the Calvinist view of soteriology of salvation. So truly, who, who mean that in a, in a Presbyterian or similar sense to that. So essentially, if you were a church that, that agrees with that, you are probably going to agree with these principles in the way that we're going to talk about them. They can be applied in different ways. So there are some nuances, some mild differences. In the grand scheme of things, they are minimally different, but there are some differences. And so that's why afterwards, we're then going to go through our order of worship, our liturgy, and see, well, how did we actually apply those? If we said, we think this is true, we believe this, we think this is the right way to view worship, well, what does that actually look like in our worship service? Because it can take a few different forms. And, and so what I want us to do as we do this, I'll, I'll, we'll make this back and forth. I'll have lots of questions. Many of these will not be difficult questions. For many of you all, you're very familiar with Reformed worship about what it is that we're doing, what these things mean. So I would ask you, please, uh, when I ask you the question, uh, there will be lots of softball questions. So please, uh, please answer those. Uh, Matt is fond of saying this. I think Billy said it too when he did his series on Christianity Explored, but after asking a question and nobody says anything, they both say we're very comfortable with silence. I'll tell you, I'm not very comfortable with silence in that situation. So I will probably start calling on people if, uh, if nobody has uh, an answer that they want to volunteer. So the best way, if that sounds terrible to you, the best way to avoid that is if you know an answer to something, make sure that you say it because I'm really then unlikely to call on you again if you've already said something. So, so if you want to try to avoid that and, and if you hate me afterwards, then I'm, we'll, we'll, we'll get through it. So, so that's kind of how we're... Uh, that's how we're going to approach things this morning. So, uh, so we'll start then by going through a few different principles, and I've listed them here, and I think the first one that there is, at least as a way to conceptualize this, is probably the most important, certainly for the way that we're going to unpack these today, and that is thinking about the regulative principle of worship. So we'll start already. Some of you have at least heard about this, so I'd be interested in who can give some sort of a description about that, and I should say, for my purposes, a wrong answer is just as good as a right answer. It, just, it gets a conversation going back and forth with us, so if you don't actually know, but you feel brave and want to take a guess, that is totally fine with me. So when we talk about the regulative principle of worship, just somebody give me a sense. What are we talking about here? Graham. Uh, God wants to be worshipped in a particular way, and he tells us that way in Scripture, and so we allow the Scripture to regulate how we conduct our services. 
Good, so, so Graham's already given a wonderful definition. We'll look at a very similar one, the, one of the official ones from the Westminster Standards. But yeah, the idea that is God has told us how he wants to worship. We don't really have a lot of options and some of the particular applications of it, but at least from a high level view, this isn't something that we're just coming up with. But th this was a principle that was really thoroughly developed, particularly around Calvin and, and several of his contemporaries, his predecessors. Uh, there was a move out of it. Part of it was a big move from Roman Catholicism, which had a lot of extra elements. And it wasn't just they had a lot of extra elements, but there was a great standardization that came from Rome and said, if you're going to worship in a certain way, you have to worship this way. And some of those were biblical elements, but some of those were not things that you would find in scripture, but it was required. If you're a Roman Catholic church, which every Christian church essentially was, or most of them were at that time, this is how you had to follow that. The, the, the contrast that we often think in Protestant circles was another one that came up at the same time or similar to that time. And Luther was more of a proponent of that, and that's the normative principle. And, and that is different in saying that, that we still follow Scripture, but as long as the Scripture doesn't say that you can't do something, then it's totally fine to do that. There's still wisdom, and even in Luther's services look very much like Calvin's services, so it didn't lead to some wild, crazy difference, but as a principle, it is very different, is to say we don't have to look for how God says we have to worship, but as long as, it's, as, long as it says we can't do it that way, then, then it's fair game to at least consider that. So what I wanted to do is start with actually how it is in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's in chapter 21 of that, and it's the first part of that, the first section of, of that, uh, that number one point there actually talks about how we know about God, and that's a lot of what we see in Romans 1, is that you can, you can tell much about God just from nature. The light of nature reveals at least that there is a God. But then, then there's a contrast here that the divines put, and they say, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And so limited by his own revealed will, so that's in scriptures where God's re revealed will is, that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men, or the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So that then puts a major onus on us is as we say, well, this is how we worship. This is what we think the important principles are. We have to be able to demonstrate that in Scripture. Because if we can't, then we're in violation of the principle that we said this is how it defines how we worship. And I'd also argue that that principle itself actually requires that Scripture support that and that you can show it from there. Um, what we're going to do, we're going to look at a few of those Scriptures uh, for any of you. So this is my, one of my copies of the Westminster Standard. So you can see these, the points actually are are pretty short. They're just a few lines. And then all of the scriptures that the, the divines list to support that are underneath. So this, is, this book is mostly just scripture references here. We have nowhere near much, enough time to go through all this. If, if you wanted to do it, I would imagine it's an entire seminary course if you want to go through those things. So we're going to be very selective in the scriptures that we look at. So understandably, because this is looking at a whole of scripture, it's using patterns that we see throughout the entirety of the Bible. I'm going to be picking and choosing, and I've tried to find good representative ones, but it's not going to give you the entire picture. So, so don't worry if I read something and say, I'm not sure I'm totally convinced of that point. There's a lot more to it than that, but, but I've just tried to give you some illustrations or examples of, of where that comes from. So as far as the regulative principle itself, uh, one passage that's frequently used to demonstrate that is Leviticus 10. Uh, as we know, we, uh, Matt and Nathan preached through Exodus not long ago, so we know that there was lots of many details in there about exactly what the Israelites were supposed to do. That was largely around the tabernacle itself, but there's just as many 
many details later on throughout the Pentateuch about how they are to worship. And in this one, we hear about two sons of Aaron, the high priest, who did not worship as they were supposed to. So in Leviticus 10, starting at the very beginning, verse 1, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And so you might say, well, yeah, that was the Old Testament, and there were ceremonial laws, and maybe this was more of a ceremonial law, and that, maybe that whole expectation wraps up in that. I mean, it's pretty harsh, killing, killing somebody because they didn't follow. They, from the, the sense of this, it's not just that they were told specifically something, but it was, it was just they were not told to do this, but they did it anyway. But the, the companion passage, or at least the passage that references that, is in Hebrews. So it's in uh, Hebrews 12. And we're going to, again, just jumping right into the middle of something, or at least the end of a chapter here. And, and it's where the writer of Hebrews makes reference to this passage. So starting in verse 28, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And commentators are largely agreed that that specific inclusion in verse 29 there is a reference back to that episode in Leviticus. And so tying that to say this is still in effect, this isn't something that, that went away because we're in a, a New Testament era and so that's not applicable. Again, there, there are many other passages that we could look at about why we would describe the regulative principle of worship as the way that we should be thinking as we order our worship. But that would just be one example from, from scriptures about why we think that that's the case. So we're going to have to think about that. And then also as we go through these other principles, because of that, we're going to at least briefly reference, if not look at a little bit, some of the scriptural support for these other principles about why we think that that's the case. So we'll move on to the next point here shortly. Questions about that or other comments? Like I said, I, I, many of you guys know more about this subject than I do, so please participate. Um, we've had to be fairly high level, but if you realize, oh, man, he left out something that was really important, please uh, chime in and, and speak up about that. Questions or comments from people before we move on? All right, good. So the next principle that you'll see on your handout is that of the dialogical principle. And... That one, I, that one was pretty quickly, we'll talk about what that is, was apparent when I started uh, worshiping in a Reformed church. I don't think I actually somehow had missed that as the specific term describing it for a long time. It's a standard accepted term. I don't know how I'd missed it. But just to make sure that nobody else is missing that. So when we talk about the dialogical principle, what is that? Somebody give a description of what we're talking about. J.D.? Uh, the worship is a conversation, a dialogue between God yeah. and people responding to what he tells yeah, good. So we maybe don't use that form of it, but dialogical is a dialogue. So it's a conversation. So it's a back and forth. And I certainly for me, that was the biggest thing that stood out when I went to a Reformed worship service for the first time. I'm, what on this is weird. I have never seen anything like this. This is really weird. I don't know what is going on here. So that was the most obvious uh, on its face abnormality, so to speak, for, from my perspective about the dialogical principle. And I think one that, that requires careful thought and, and, and thinking through scripture about worship services in scripture to understand where that comes from. So this one, and we're going to turn to Joshua 24. Again, several places we could look at, but I, I think this is the most helpful. And it's also going to help us with our next point as well. So we're going to hang out in Joshua for a little while. All right, and I'm going to have um, 
Ruth, as I go along, I'm going to have you help me out here because I'm just going to make sure that it's really obvious what we're doing here. So I want us to, to illustrate, make sure everybody knows how this illustrates how the dialogical principle here. So again, this back and forth conversation. So I'm going to have you stop me when I get to points that say, hey, well, we just shifted here. This was a back and forth. We shifted from who's talking. So before she does that, so as a reminder, we read through Joshua not long ago. This is the, the narrative of the people of Israel coming out of Egypt and then into the promised land and conquering it. Then at the very end, this is the last chapter, at the very end of this, Joshua puts together what is a worship service. And, and we'll look at here in a second of how we know that that's the case. But the people gather together for a worship service, and this is right before, at least in the narrative, Joshua dies. And, and so starting at the beginning in verse 24, it says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And then at that point, there's a fairly prolonged uh, description that Joshua gives of what God has done. It's a, a historical overview of what he has done. So Ruth, help me out here then. So this is a separate question then for you, a bonus question for you. So what is the importance when, when Joshua starts his speech with saying, thus says the Lord your God of Israel, why, why would he include that? What, what, to us, what difference does that make? Why would it matter if, say, he had just left that part out altogether? Yeah, so it's clearly highlighting here that, yes, Joshua is the one who is up here. He is the one who is speaking, but these are not his words that he is speaking. He is speaking the words of God to the people. Where else do we see this? So this is not just an interesting historical situation that doesn't happen anymore. Where do we see this happen on a regular basis? Somebody else besides Ruth. I'm going to keep picking on her in a second. No, no, currently in our own lives, where do we see that? So where do we see somebody getting up and standing before us? And it is, it's the, yeah, so it's preaching. So we're going to talk more about that. But that is what preaching is. It is a, as, as Calvin said, you, when a man climbs up into a pulpit, God is using him to deliver his word. So we see that again. So this is a very similar situation as to how we recognize what that is. All right, so, so many verses Joshua goes on here. Um, and then he goes all the way through um, and says one of the, the, the famous things, and this ends up at the very end of verse 15, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But then in 16, it transitions. Then the people answered. So Ruth, what happened there? Yeah, so they're responding. So this is Joshua has finished the word of God coming to the people. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Um, and then they go on for a while in, in their response. Okay, so then in verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, all right, Ruth, what's happening there? Yeah, so reminding. So it's again, it's a response here. So Joshua started with the word of God. So God spoke to the people. The people answered God by speaking back in that situation. And then again, Joshua speaks the word of God so when, when he reminds them, when, when he exhorts them and, and says, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. Uh, and then in verse 21, and the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Ruth, what happened there? Yeah, so, so again, I mean, it's very much an ongoing conversation, even a bit more. They're specifically responding. So again, the people respond. Uh, and, and then immediately afterwards, we, we hear uh, yet another response uh, um, from Joshua there. Let me pick up where it was. 
Uh, yeah, then, then Joshua said to the people again, verse 22, you are witnesses against yourself and you ha- that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And again, and they said to him, we are witnesses. And then he said, so this goes on and on. So I, I think it's helpful to point these things out. This isn't just somebody said something and then at one point somebody said something back. This was an extensive back and forth conversation. So hopefully you, that sounds familiar to you because you do that every Sunday here and we'll look at that here in just a second. Okay, good. So, so I think that, that helpfully illustrates the, the dialogical principle here, that, that conversation, um, that back and forth. An important one, we see it here and, it, and we see it in our service. We'll look at it here in just a second, is who started that conversation? God. Yeah, so it was Joshua, but Joshua speaking as God. So that, he was speaking the words of God. And that is the important one, and that is a, a key part of this principle, is that this conversation is always initiated by God. We'll look at how we try to capture that in our worship service. But when we have a conversation with the Almighty God of the universe, it is at his invitation. It is because he has first reached out to us to speak to us. And then in that sense, we respond to him. And then at the very end of this conversation, so this goes all the way um, through 28, or so through 27 where you see it before Joshua sends them away, the last word is God as well. So this is God in the conversation. He begins it and he ends it. And so that, that is another consistent thing that we see in worship. So that's, that's that dialogical principle, this conversation. Nehemiah has another wonderful one. So when the people have returned from captivity and they worship back in Israel for the first time in a long time, we see a very similar worship service. So this isn't an isolated unusual event. This is how we see worship described. So we're going to stick in Joshua 24 for that next point that you see highlighted. I put a couple things together. They're, they're probably separate, but I think it's helpful um, to see those together. Before we do that, Barrett's got a question. Well, just for perspective, if there's anyone like me who's super Presbyterian, in a, say, Baptist context, is it that there's no interaction between... Yeah, so, so like, good. So... Yeah, so thank you for not letting me assume that everybody's like me, which is probably what I do all the time. But yeah, so not everybody uh, grew up in different traditions and then came into the Reformed tradition. Some folks like Barrett have. So there are a few different models of worship overall. So, so we have primarily described this as we follow the regulative principle, and then the big thing that structures our worship is this back and forth, is this conversation. There's a couple of other, at least in Protestantism, a couple of other main forms that, that how worship services are structured. One of them I don't think I've ever seen, so I can't describe it very well, but it is modeling your worship service after the songs of ascent that we see in the Psalms. So very much as you were climbing up into the Temple Mount, heavily focused on praise, as we saw in Psalms, and then once you are in the Temple, that is much more of receiving uh, instruction from God. I don't think I've ever seen a service structured that way, but that is at least one of the descriptions that's out there. The, the way I grew up, the, one of the descriptions of that is what's called a two-task model. And it's a very simplified view of saying that, that there are two parties, so there's not a disagreement about that. It's God and his people, but what, they're, what you're doing in a worship service, there's really two jobs. So the job, so to speak, of the people who are there worshiping is to praise, and the job of God, if you wouldn't describe it that way, but just to simplify the discussion, is to teach us. So really, almost everything can fit into one of those two categories. So the main thing that the people do is there is singing. So that is, that is the main way that God is praised. So there is that. And then often it's often lumped together. So the first part of the service is entirely the people praising God, largely through song. And then afterwards, there is a sermon. So that's, that's the opportunity where the people are taught by God. 
I've oversimplified it there. I'm sure there are dozens, hundreds of ways that that, that can be nuanced. But yeah, there, there's very little, uh, other than singing, there, the churches that I grew up in, there was no um, verbal audience participation. So, so like how does it, say when you were growing up, how would a service start? How would it even begin? Yeah, it begins similar uh, to, to ours as far as announcement sort of thing goes. And then starting it, there may be a call to worship. It was maybe scriptural, but, but not always, particularly I think these days. Uh, the, the call to worship is just something that, uh, that one of the ministers has come up with. And, th- and then it's very quickly transitioned into singing, and that goes on for a while. I Good. thought the stage, there's a tendency towards a show, like there might be a choir that's singing, but the congregation is Yeah, I, I wasn't going to say anything about this, but since, since you set me up, so... <laughs> Because I know some people love choirs, are great about choirs, and you, you may wonder, well, we don't have a choir, and it's not just because we don't have a choir loft, and we couldn't really fit one up here. I think if you're viewing this from the dialogical principle, it's very difficult to figure out where a choir fits into that. Now, some, sometimes it's you're, you're doing offerings. Sometimes it's you're doing offerings, and, and, the, and the music is to accompany the other things that are going on, and so it's not the actual main focus that's going on, or during communion, for example, so people are coming up, and, and so you have music, so, so that, that would be a separate thing. But I think a big part from the reformer's perspective is they were trying to get back the people where they were actually worshiping. Uh, in, the, in the Roman Catholic Mass, for many people, I didn't speak Latin. And so largely what you did during a worship service is you sat here and you watched other people worship. You didn't participate at all. Uh, you didn't understand anything that was going on. And a big part of what the reformers were trying to do was to get it back to where the people were fully participating. And so when it's a conversation between God and his people, so that is always the back and forth. And so you think about an extreme, so one that I don't know, probably anybody's terribly wedded to, but if you think about just a solo, especially, it, it's kind of hard to figure out where that fits in. You'd almost have to carve that out of some separate activity that happens here. And I've probably gotten people fired up, but yeah, Liz, question or comment from you? Yeah, yeah, and so a lot of it, and I, I'll, I'll give you the, about the only answer I can give you right now before I move on, we'll, we'll say it's in the interest of time, not in the lack of knowledge on my part. But a lot of that is if you look at who those groups are, it's often the priests that are doing that. So that was considered a priestly activity, was to offer that worship before God. And that is a big change that we see on this side of the cross is in this new covenant era is that there is a priesthood of believers. So there is not a unique group of folks who are specially tasked with doing certain elements of worship, but we see that as that is something that the entire congregation is to participate in. I, there's disagreement on this, so, that, so this, a lot of that was, was how I see that. There are obviously wonderful churches throughout the PCA that we, we consider very dear sister churches that, that have a different view on this, so that is very much how that gets applied, so it's fine if you disagree with that, you're, you're not somehow outside the bounds of what's acceptable reformed worship. Uh, that, that, is, that is, I would say, is one potential application of that. So, but we, we will move on uh, for a variety of reasons then. Okay, good. So uh, the, the next point that we want to point out here is the focus on the ordinary means of grace. And uh, somebody give me an understanding. So we have them listed there so we know what they are. So it's the word sacrament and prayer. But when we talk about ordinary means of grace, what, what do we mean by that phrase? I'll, I'll give somebody how the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it shortly, but Mike, yeah, what are your thoughts? Uh, these are instruments by which God has ordained to 
Yeah, so, so that, that's a great description of that, and, and the shorter catechism will actually describe that. Yeah, it's, it's the means by which God communicates to us the benefits of our redemption. Um, I'll slip. I'll, we're going to talk about grace here just very briefly, but it's not a, grace is not a substance. That's also a Roman Catholic view, is that grace is some sort of a substance that is given to us. Grace is the benefits of God. It's the benefits of our salvation. It is God giving us himself. Um, so it's not truly a substance, but I'll probably describe it that way uh, inaccurately. But when we're thinking about how God, once, once he gives us himself, what does that look like? What are those means? It's not some sort of, oh, magic's not the right word, but it's not just something that God wants to give us himself and then it just all of a sudden ends up in us. He has ordained means to do that, and these are the way that he ordinarily does it. Ordinary does not mean that they're trivial, that they're boring, that they're, they're, they're not very important. It means that this is how God ordinarily works. This is how he normally works. He can work extraordinarily. He doesn't have to work this way. He has in scriptures. We see many examples of that. But he typically works through the word sacrament and prayer. And we can see early on. So again, thinking about that regular principle is that we need to be able to defend these views. So thinking about it in Acts, so chapter 2. So this is right after Pentecost and starting in verse 42. So right after the, 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 the big shift in, in thinking about who the church is, what the church is, what its work is about, we see very early on a description of what the apostles are about, about what the, the believers are, are about here, the work that they are doing. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And, and particularly as we see what that looks like through the rest of Acts and through the rest of Scripture, we see those three things as a specific reference that most commentators would agree with the ordinary means of grace. So this is focused on the word, on the breaking of bread is communion, so as a sacrament, and then prayer uh, as the work of what the church is to be about. And so that is something that, um, that we see here. Now, I think one thing that, that's important to consider is, uh, so somebody give me a sense, so I, I, this is sometimes helpful to, to think about, to depict as an arrow, as a means of grace. So if we wanted to draw it out on a board, and my handwriting's worse than Billy's, so that's why I didn't, I didn't bring out his board to write on it. But if we wanted to do that, if, if we wanted to put God, and then we wanted to put ourselves here, and we were thinking about drawing arrows, as a means of grace, the arrow always goes in one direction. Somebody tell me what that is. Yeah, so it's from God to us. So even in prayer, when we are the ones doing something, we are the ones who are receiving the benefit of that. So God is using our actions to pray to him to communicate the blessings, the benefits of salvation to us. So it gets a little tricky then, so we always have to keep in mind that as we have two different principles, the dialogic one which says in worship, there's a back and forth. God speaks to us and then we speak back to him. But regardless of who's talking and where that communication is coming from and to, the blessing of that from the grace, again, not a substance, but thinking about it that way, that grace is coming from God to us and all that. So, so if you drew arrows, they would be confusing. Sometimes I'd go in the same direction. Sometimes they would go in opposite directions. But, but we'll think about that in, in, in our worship here shortly. So uh, the prayer, just to, to really quickly wrap up these principles, so word, sacrament, and prayer, we see in scriptures a variety of different types of prayer. So we're not going to look through those uh, in the interest of time, but somebody give me, so when we see the different ways that people are praying, how could we categorize those different types of prayer? Somebody give us some examples, and you can either just describe it or if you know a good word that, that would succinctly summarize what's happening there. Give me, give me some ideas, Todd. So there's praying. 
Yeah, so praise is an important one. So petition, so that's asking God. That's often what we initially jump to is, is that supplication. So Thanksgiving, another one. Todd's almost said all of them. Uh, other ones that people can think of. So another big one. Yeah, so confession. I don't know who said it over here, but confession is another big one. And I think in particular in a Reformed worship service is, is one um, that if you're not used to that can stand out as very unique. It certainly did, did for me and took me a while to figure that out. So those are the principles that I want us to focus on. You could come up with other ones, but I think those are the most helpful ones for our purposes. One thing before we move on to how that gets applied to our worship service, I want to make a distinction between what are called elements or sometimes substances and then how those get applied. So circumstances or forms are sometimes the technical words that are used there. And I think a good example of that is thinking about when we worship. So we worship Sunday morning. We start our service at 9 o'clock in the morning. So as far as worshiping on Sunday, why do we do that? Yeah, so it's a clear principles. It's clearly stated that that's the pattern of the church in the New Testament. So that, that's why we do that. We feel like there is very clear scriptural warrant and instruction to do that. Everybody in, in Protestantism degree, agrees with that. You have Seventh-day Adventists, so there's some disagreement there. But by and large, everybody agrees on that. But why the 9 o'clock in the morning? So J.D. is one of the elders. Why, why, do, we, why do we worship at 9 yeah, yeah, and where, and where's the, yeah, where, where's the reference, though, that, yeah, there isn't a reference in that. So I think a helpful way to think about that is if we are commanded to do something, but not exactly how, you had to do it some way, then, then that, that is more just a, a circumstance or a form. So we're commanded to worship on Sunday, so we know that that's what we're supposed to do, but we're not told when we have to worship on Sunday, so we picked 9 o'clock because we thought it was a good idea for several different reasons. You may agree, disagree with that. It may be too early for you, but, but that, there's not a scriptural warrant for that. So maybe a little simplistic or a little silly, but I think that's helpful as we tease some of these things out. This is also a helpful way to I think about is when our pastors wear robes. I, again, you can get an entire lecture on the history of robes, where those come from, why we do those things. But there's also lots of Reformed churches. So we talked about choirs. This is another good example of that. There's a lot of Reformed churches, sister churches, just down the road that we have wonderful fellowship with, and their pastors do not wear robes. And the way that you can think about it is, mercifully, the pastors have to wear thing. So if they have to wear something, then, then we have liberty to try to say, what, what is it that we think is best here? And, and, and there's a rationale for that. I think that, that's something that Matt and Nathan particularly talk about on the podcast. There's a plug for the podcast if you want to listen to that, about the history of that and why we think that's helpful, what that points to, that that helps you see that this is not a man who is up here, but that robe helps cover that man and points to God and says, hey, this is the word of God that's coming to you. Um, but, but that would be an example of, of something that we would say that is not dictated by scripture, but that, that is a, a circumstance or a form that we have used here. I would wrap up this section by just adding a, as another example of that. I think the liturgical calendar probably fits fairly well into that. So we've talked a little bit, a little bit, uh, talked about it in the past a little bit. We're green today, so we're back in ordinary time, but it had been Christmas the week before that, Advent before that. That's not something that's dictated by Scripture. Uh, but we have to preach something. So every week we preach something. We have to focus our Scripture readings on something. Our songs are going to be on something. And, and we find this a helpful way at certain times throughout the year to focus our attention and to bring more of a thematic cohesion to the songs that we sing and, and the sermon and the scripture reading that we do, but you don't have to. It's not in scripture. It's clearly not there, so we've never mandate that. Again, many wonderful sister churches that, that don't do that. Some of them actually that feel pretty strongly against doing that, um, but, but, but that would be one of the ways that that could be applied.
Okay, so in a second, we're going to transition and look at our liturgy. But questions about any of these sort of things, uh, comments that people want to make before we move on to application for us. All right, good. So I'll hopefully you hung on to your liturgy, your order of worship. If not, uh, that's another thing. I think Sarah always puts that on the, uh, on the website. So you can uh, pull that up there if you out of habit tossed yours before. So first of all, what else do I want to think about? I've used a few different words. So when we describe what this thing is, we, we typically describe this as the order of worship. But I kept using the word liturgy fairly frequently. So somebody um, help me understand, when you hear the word liturgy, what do you think about? You can either give me a definition of that word if you happen to know it, or just, just describe to me what you think of when you see something like that applied, what that actually looks like. I'll call on people. Yeah, so something that's actually written out. So you, you tend to think about that when you think of, say, a liturgical worship service. You think about something that's really important, like almost always the elder says, make sure you got one of these things because you really, really need it. Good, Craig, you had some thoughts about that? Yeah. So liturgy is originally in the secular Greek. I feel like you're, you're cheating. If you're, I said definition. I didn't think anybody was going to give an actual literal definition, but I'm glad you did, yes. Yeah. So it went from charity to uh, this, it's grown now, it's kind of like a synonym for worship. Yeah, and, and I would say, yeah, synonym for worship in particular, and I would say tying back to that historical uses that you referenced to, some of the actual forms or the structure of it, because sometimes it was unique to this part of it or that part of it, and those things together, that structure describes what the liturgy is. And when often people think a liturgical church service, they often think of, of some people describe it as a very high. So it's very structured. You've got to get one of these things. There's lots of reading. There's lots of back and forth. But really, just, liturgy just refers to the structure of your church service. And every church service has to have some sort of a structure unless it's just a total free-for-all. And I don't know. There are many churches that way. And I once heard a pastor say who was fond of, of, of being a little bit snarky. So he would say when he hears people who say, well, my church isn't liturgical, he would say, yes, it is. It just doesn't have a very good liturgy. It's one that didn't have a lot of thought. It didn't have a lot of form. He just kind of put some things together. But that was your structure. You do have a liturgy. It's not a very detailed liturgy. It's not a very structured, maybe not a very consistent liturgy, but you do have one. And, and so that's one of the things that I, I wanted us to, to think about is thinking about, well, how do we structure our liturgy? And I think one of the important things is how consistent it is. So if you've ever worshipped at another Reformed church, particularly if you have a, a background of what a radically different church service can look like, but then if you have worshipped at another church, you're probably going to be struck about how similar these things are. They're not exactly the same. I don't think I've ever been to a Reformed service that's exactly like ours is, but... but 
I am, we are consistently struck, as we try to do on vacation whenever we can, if it falls on a Sunday, just go to another, particularly a PCA church. And we're always struck, man, it, it is so similar to what we do. So there's lots of consistency with other churches. And what I want us to look at is, is the historical consistency as well. We're not going to go through this in detail, but I printed out there at the bottom, so Calvin's liturgy. Now, this was from 1542. I, there's a few different forms of it online. They're obviously all translated. They weren't initially in English. So I'm trusting somebody who, who translated that for me and just copied that in there. And there, there are several different ones. Calvin wanted to do communion weekly, but because of the structure of, of Geneva and how the church was intricately tied to the, the city government there, he was actually not allowed by the city fathers to the city leaders to do communion weekly. They thought that was a little too Roman Catholic, so he can only do it monthly. But these on weeks when he was allowed to do communion, this is what it looked like. So somebody just give me a sense. I'm not looking for anything detailed here, but if you look at this structure, how might you compare or contrast that very simply in a sentence to our worship service. Graham? Seems like uh, they're, they're singing some parts of the service that we... Yeah, so there's, so there's some differences there, things that we would typically say. I think the Apostles' Creed was one of them. Maybe we say that, but in, in Calvin service, they, they sung that. So some of the, the, the forms of that, you might say, are a little bit different. But besides that... Some of the things are different. The Ten Commandments were in there. I have been in Reformed services that do that, but not usually. We don't, and most other ones don't, that, that at least I've been a part of. But besides those contrasts, how, how might you compare that to ours? Very similar, yeah. So it is remarkably similar. And following that, you could say, well, that, that's a tradition. That's not something that we, have, that we are bound to, that we have to do just because everybody else has done it. But we should find great peace and comfort in that, is, is that, uh, that as wise Christians who are dedicated to Scripture for many, many hundreds and thousands of years have looked at how God wants to be worshipped, they keep coming up with a very similar answer. And, and that should be a source of confidence uh, 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 to reassure us in the way that we worship. Not, we should always be comparing ourselves to Scripture. That is the only inerrant rule of practice. That is what we compare ourselves to. But as we try to figure out how to do that, we should get comfort in knowing that other people have done that the same way. Um, one final thing that I'll mention before we look at it, because uh, we don't have a ton of time left to look at our liturgy, but is the benefit of having it so consistent week to week. And, and you, I'm sure that you've noticed this, is when we look at it, the, the, the process that we go through, yes, the, the songs are different, the, the passages are different, the prayers have a, on a rotation, but it's remarkably consistent. And not every church does that, but we do. And again, pretty typical of Reformed. And I, one of my favorite um, defenses of that that I've ever heard was from an Anglican, was from C.S. Lewis. And he, he was describing why it is so helpful to have a consistent liturgy. And he described it as a dance. And he said, think about it. If the, if the dance that you were doing every single week was different, you would have to be incredibly focused on the dance itself, when, when which foot is supposed to move somewhere and how the music changes and what you're supposed to do. Don't dance, so you can probably tell that. But he said, you would be entirely fixated on thinking about that. He said, but when it's always the same dance every week, you get to focus on the person that you're dancing with. And you don't have to be worried about what that next step is. So, uh, so maybe not a theological defense, maybe more of a, of a poetic one, but, but I thought that that was a, a very helpful way for me to think about that. So let's actually look at, at our liturgy. So we'll start on page three. So somebody help me out. So we've got several different things here that starts. We have a welcome and announcements. We have a preparation for worship. We have a prelude. We have a call to worship. So several things on that first page. Where does the worship service actually start? We, we talked about it already, but somebody actually pointed out on here, where does it actually start? 
So it's the call to worship. So it's not all that other stuff that goes before. The, the word that's actually there is helpful. So when our pianist, when it's Cassie, whoever it is, plays, it's prelude. So it's pre. It goes before the worship service. So it's actually built into the name. It helps you figure that out. But all those other things that we do here, when I was up here giving announcements, that was not a part of the worship service. We were getting ready to start it, but we hadn't started it yet. It's actually with that call to worship. And why is that? Why is that such an important thing? Why, why can't it have been when someone said, hey, good morning, it's good to see you as a part of the announcements? Why can't that have been the start of the worship service? Yeah, because God initiates it. So it has to be the word of God that's coming to us that invites us into his presence. Uh, We do this as a responsive reading, but still think of that uh, as a conversation. That initial conversation is God's word coming to us, inviting us to worship him. Again, the, 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 the blessing also comes to us. So it's not only the word, but God uses that word to us as a means of grace to us. Um, and then that continues again with more scripture that we have here. So a psalm reading as we do every week, continuing that word of God from the pastor. And, and often, not always, but often as we'll see up here, the pastor is, is that voice of God that told you what Calvin said, is, is particularly was around preaching, but when a man steps into a pulpit, that he is the voice of God here. So as he reads, it's scripture, so that's why he has that authority, because it's not his words, but God's words that are coming to us as that voice of God. And then we have a hymn of praise. Okay, so we were thinking about ordinary means of grace, about word, sacrament, and prayer. Singing was not one of those things. So have we already deviated from trying to focus on the ordinary means of grace in our worship service here now that we're singing a song and not doing one of those three things? Yeah, it's prayer. So that's what it is. So when you see hymn of praise, we, we sometimes rotate. That traditionally is that, that first hymn is a hymn of praise. But that is a, I think of it as a sung prayer. So you are still praying. We are praying corporately. But yes, but we are singing that prayer to God. So that, that is a hymn of praise, a prayer of praise that we are singing to God. And then, okay, good. So we get to our first of our prayers here. We talked about the different types of prayer, of praise, of supplication, or asking God, uh, petitioning God for something, uh, for uh, thanksgiving, of confession. But we have a prayer of invocation. So what is that? There's a technical usage of that word, uh, invocation. You can think of invoke as the, as the root of that. But, but there's some other things that happens there. So what, what is happening in the prayer of invocation? Any guesses? Chris? Yeah, so that's specifically what invocation refers to. So when you are, yeah, when you're, an invocation is invoking, you are asking God to oversee this service, to, to meet with us, to, to use his word powerfully. But another thing, and I think it's important, so that, that's, you could think of that as a petition almost, you're asking God for something. But the other thing that is often included here, and I think you can hear it just beautifully in Matt and Nathan, when uh, Matt Bonner is doing this for us, is the praise. So, so even though that's not technically what is captured in that term, that is a prayer here that is over flowing with praise and thanksgiving to God for who he is and what he's done. We then see a, a, a transition here to a, a, um, a scripture lesson. So again, the word of God that is coming to us. Uh, and then we have a confession of sin. And so, so that is another one. I mentioned this before, but this will often jump out as a highly unusual thing if you're not, not used to that, not used to hearing that. Um, but that, that is a prayer of, that we offer up to God. And then afterwards, we hear an assurance of pardon. And why, at least the way that it's here, when we have just confessed our sins, what makes the assurance of pardon so powerful the way that it's formatted? You can actually see what it is, what's actually listed here. What did you actually hear Nathan say this morning? 
Matt, Matt in particular is fond of pointing this out. It's God's word, yeah. So it's not in, I don't know that it necessarily has to be, but for it to make sense, for it to have the power that it needs to have, it's God's word it's assuring us that we have been forgiven of our sins. And again, it's that role of the pastor to deliver God's word to us. And there is no way that that can be more powerfully done than, than by actually preaching scripture. There is, a, again, another song uh, uh, back to God, a prayer that we sing back to God, uh, another prayer, so illumination. So that, that would be, again, asking God, that's particularly around the sermon, asking that he will illuminate our hearts, but also a request, a petition to God. Uh, and then a sec- second scripture lesson, so that's the reading of the scripture for the second time. Then we come to preaching. So I, this maybe sounds like a deviation, because before it's, all, it's been prayer, word, prayer, word, a few different combinations of that. But now we have preaching. So uh, this is the first of two times I'll ask you this on this page. So have we deviated from that pattern of word, prayer, prayer, word? When the preaching specifically after the word of God is read? Yeah, so it is the word of God. So you can think it might most powerfully described in the second Helvetic confession is that the preached word of God is the word of God, uh, which I, uh, you have to be careful about exactly how you apply that. But the point of that is, is to illustrate that that is the word of God that is coming to us. It, it, it should not just be some uh, anecdotes, some stories, some, uh, some funny jokes that are being told. It is the word of God that is being expounded in preaching, and in so doing, it is the word of God itself. So another prayer, prayer of intercession. So that's another word when we talked about uh, petition or supplication. Sometimes you'll see in other services that traditionally this is the pastoral prayer when the pastor is offering up a prayer on our behalf. This gets a little bit weird as we think about who that conversation is. So that's actually the pastor on our behalf praying to God. And we've seen the pastor pray a few different times. But, but so that is not as much the word of God coming to us, but the pastor on our behalf lifting up those requests that the congregation has to God. We have the Lord's Prayer, so specifically a prayer here, and then the affirmation of faith, and you see Calvin had that in in his liturgy, so we've been doing that as a church for a very long time. And then I'll ask you that question again, so we have the Lord's Supper. So again, it's been word, prayer, prayer, word, word, prayer, back and forth. So now we have communion, so are we deviating again from that pattern of focused on on word and prayer? And this is an ordinary means of grace, but just thinking about those, the, the prayer and the word. Have we deviated? It is God's word. So it's God's word made sensible to us. And you hear, I think Nathan said it exactly that way this morning, is, is that throughout scripture, the main way that, that God reveals himself to us is from hearing. Uh, and, and so you know, we see that both in a pattern, but also very explicitly that, that faith comes by hearing. And so that's the main way. But God, knowing our weakness, as Calvin describes, helps us in other ways. And so that he has made the word sensible so that all of our senses are partaking and, and observing and, and, and seeing with, in other ways the word. So we actually get to see it in front of us. We get to taste it. We can actually touch it. Uh, you can smell it. So all of your other senses, after having heard the word, you then participate in the word with all of your other senses in communion. So then, as, is, as Nathan said, the rightful response of that is to sing a, a, a song of praise, praying to God, praising him for who he is. And then another uh, a prayer of thanksgiving in particular here. Our, our, the prayers have been scattered throughout with thanksgiving, but particularly focused on thanksgiving. And then uh, another song from us. 
But, and I'll wrap up with this because we're out of time. But the very last thing is that benediction. So we talked about before, God calls us into his service, into a service, into his presence. He's also the one who sends us out. And this was actually took me a really long time to figure this out. I think somebody had to tell me this because I didn't realize it. And, and I, I think I'd probably gone to a church that often would send us out with a prayer. So this is not a prayer. This is not something that we are offering up to God. And it took me a long time to figure out, as I think always during benedictions at Presbyterian churches, and maybe I was the only one, but I was always closing my, my eyes and bowing my head because I thought it was a prayer until somebody specifically said, this is not a prayer. This is God's word to you. And it's specifically, it's in the form of a blessing. God sends you out with a blessing. So uh, many of us, not everybody, you don't have to, it's not a requirement, but, but a traditional thing to do. The reason that we do this is because it helps us rem- helps remind us. It was great for me because I didn't know it for a long time, so I still had to be reminded. But this, this is a position that we take of receiving blessing. We're not doing anything. We're not doing this. We have just been blessed, and we actually take a posture to where we are receiving that blessing, again, from the pastor, that voice of God to us, and that is how God sends us out into the world for another week after having received his blessing after an entire service full of his blessing. So uh, we are out of time. I'd hope to maybe leave some time for questions, but, uh, but I have not, and your kiddos are waiting. So, uh, so I will wrap us up uh, with prayer, and, and we will be done. God, we thank you so much for um, the blessings that you give us. We thank you in particular for the services that we get to participate in each and every Sunday, that you call us into your service, that that you bless us in incredible ways, that you meet with us, that you speak to us uh, with promises, with blessings that we do not get in any other way. We thank you that, uh, that you have done that. You have designed it this way, that you have designed us to be in fellowship with you, but also with one another, that we do this corporately, that we come together as a group and, and participate as a group as we speak with one voice, uh, as we speak to you as our God and hear from you as, as our loving Father. We thank you so much for that, that you give yourself to us, that you have created these means of grace, um, and, and that you consistently communicate uh, the blessings of being in relationship to you. And, and we thank you, uh, and we praise you, and we pray all of this in, in the name of him who has, uh, whose work has given us access to you again, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.